We have a new chart today, chart 21, that will be helpful during this session. John's account of the millennium is a drastically abridged version. He's been very detailed for this, for the tribulation that we've just suffered through. But for the millennium, no. As I've said before in John's Revelation, the seven-year tribulation takes up 15 chapters. While the thousand-year millennium takes up four or five verses. Not much help there. We learn precious little about the thousand-year rule of Christ on earth from the Revelation. Happily, however, there is much we can learn from other portions of God's Word, and especially from the Old Testament prophets. Walvard writes, Though Revelation as a whole is not strictly in chronological order, as some chapters are parenthetical or summary in character, Chapters 19 and 20 constitute a unit and form one continued prophetic strain. I'm compelled to add a note to that. While that's true, the prophetic strain of chapter 20 leaves out a lot of details. Details we discover elsewhere. My goal in this session will be to present the material in a chronological sequence as best we can. Because there will be so many passages from the Old Testament and New Testament, for the sake of time, I'll not be asking you to read from these. Or even to turn to them unless you insist. That's your business. But I'll not be waiting. I will not be pausing while we wait for you to get there. I do recommend, if you will not be acquiring my notes, that you at least jot down the references as we proceed. Some are in the chart, but not all. For this period in the eschaton, the opening days of the millennium, is best chronicled elsewhere in God's Word. And one more note. For most pre-millennialists, which is the perspective of this class. Ezekiel's temple, chapters 40 to 48 in Ezekiel, is a millennial temple built and used during the millennium. But there are very real problems that come with that. Not least the bloody sacrifices that will be taking place in that temple with Christ in residence. There's a head-scratcher. Were I to include this discussion in class, it would easily take up an entire session. I have decided instead to issue a printed handout that discusses this problematic temple and its practices, probably on March 19, our next session. Now, let's begin with the Davidic kingdom. One can easily spiritualize Christ's 
kingdom to represent the church during this current dispensation. And there's something to be said for that. But we must wait for His return and the subsequent millennium to see the literal, ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, if we ever begin to question the cohesive narrative integrity of the Bible, here's a tip. The end times millennium is foreshadowed all the way back in the first book of God's Word. Genesis 49.10 The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, or another way to translate that would be, until he comes to whom it belongs. So until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's kind of an opaque passage. To paraphrase those last two lines, the seed will one day show up and He will rule over all the peoples of the earth. That's the millennium. When King David vowed to build a house for Yahweh, a literal house, the Lord pulled him aside and said, no, no, but I'll build a house for you in a prophecy that commingles David's son Solomon with David's son Jesus, along with a description of a time of peace for Israel, he was told that this house would be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, verses 10-12. to I will also appoint... This is God speaking through the prophet. I will also appoint a place for My people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Now we can pause there. Has that happened yet? No. Will it happen during the tribulation? No. It has to be the millennium. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Then after a couple of verses specific to Solomon, the prophecy returns to Christ in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. We know from God's Word that David's throne and even the thrones of his human descendants did not last forever. It isn't there now. but one of His descendants will have an eternal kingdom that will last forever. Perhaps the most full-throated prophecy of the millennial kingdom is found in the astonishing second Psalms. Second Psalm. Psalm 2, verses 6-12. But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain, 
I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Like the passage in 2 Samuel, many if not most of the prophecies about the kingdom mention the return of the Jews to Israel at the beginning of the millennium. Jeremiah 23, verses 3-6 Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture. And they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, up to that point, we may think, well, I can think of times in history past when maybe that was true. Maybe it was fulfilled. It goes on. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. That's a catchphrase for the end times. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land, In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Finally, let's recall the words the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary. Luke 1, 32-33 He will be great, And we will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. By the way, there are some who are of the opinion that this will literally be David's eternal kingdom. When a resurrected David returns to his throne, well, David will indeed be resurrected. That's going to happen. Along with the rest of the Old Testament saints. And we know that the reign of Christ will indeed be shared with others. including you and me. Go figure. And it does not fracture Scripture to imagine that the resurrected David may be something of a prince in the kingdom. It's named after him. But replacing Christ on the throne? 
No, I don't think so. As William R. Newell has written, David is not the son of David. Christ, as son of David, will be king. And David, his father after the flesh, will be, brackets, I would say, maybe, prince during the millennium. John Walvert adds, in the light of many prophecies which promise saints the privilege of reigning with Christ, it would seem most logical that David the king raised from the dead should be given a place of prominence in the Davidic kingdom of the millennial reign of Christ. As indicated in Revelation 19.16, Christ is, quote, King of kings and Lord of lords. This would certainly imply other rulers. We, we kind of miss that, don't we? Yes, He's King of kings, Lord of lords. Well, that suggests there's other kings, there's other lords. Now let's look at the necessary thinning of the flock that must take place. The millennium at the start will be peopled only by the righteous in Christ. Yet, though there will be millions of the unrighteous just killed at Armageddon, many still remain upon the earth. All these will need to be weeded out. The flock called humanity must be thinned. The unrighteous must be removed. To that end, all people from all nations will be brought before Christ the Lord. A preponderance of the eschatological prophecies speak of Israel as a nation, returning to its own land, and they will be first. Ezekiel 20, verses 33 to 38. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So, Christ will send out His angels and bring in Israel, Judah, all of how we think of Israel, bring them back to the land, but they will be judged. And the unrighteous will be weeded out. Though the remnant of Israel will pass through this time of judgment like everyone else, the Apostle Paul warns Gentile Christians not to think they are the new chosen people that there are some 
Christians, some churches that believe that we do not. Scripture seems to be quite clear on that. Romans eleven twenty five to 29 For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Don't get full of yourself. There is a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let me pause there. Part of the way, part of the manner by which He takes away their sins is He gets rid of those who are sinful. He gets rid of those who are unrighteous, unrighteous and are not believers in Him. The passage continues, From the standpoint of the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They do not cease to be His chosen people. They remain. The ungodliness within Israel must be removed, but God wants us to know that they remain His chosen people. Finally, Jesus spoke of both groups, Jews and Gentiles, when He spoke of this judgment. First, the sheep. Jesus speaking in Matthew 25, 31-34. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Now that first sentence alone tells us we're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about His second coming. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then there'll be the goats. Matthew 25, verse 41 and verse 46. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How long this judgment will take? A few seconds? A few years? No one can say. God's Word is silent on that. Before we proceed into the next thousand years, let's consider some of the qualities of this kingdom of Christ on earth. First, it will include the entire earth all the way around. No, none of this just the Middle East or just Israel. It's the entire world. And there's a delicious irony to this situation. For the last seven years, the world has apparently been ruled by someone exalting himself as God, Antichrist. But we've seen evidence that that was not literally true. Many, even those in his own neighborhood, rebelled against his kingship. 
Now, however, the true Christ has arrived. And He will indeed be King over the entire earth. Second, Christ will hold and exert absolute authority and power. He will judge fairly, but destroy any and all that oppose Him. Isaiah 11.4 But with righteousness He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. No quarter will be given. He will be tender and righteous to the poor. He will immediately judge the wicked. This is a different dispensation. Third, as Isaiah voices in that passage, Christ's rule will be marked by righteousness and justice. Just as there has never been a God like the true God, there has never been a king like the true king, Jesus. No subterfuge. No conniving. No unjust laws. No kingly paranoia. Wondering who's going to knock him off the chair. No duplicity. He will be a king like no other. Now the resurrected populace, after this judgment conducted personally by Messiah, there will remain on earth only those righteous in Christ. Gentile believers and Messianic Jews. But who else is on earth at this time? We begin with those who just arrived with the Messiah, as we saw in our previous session. The church, the bride of the Lamb, chapter 19, verse 6. Verse 8, sorry. That's what happens when I look away from my notes. The Old Testament saints, resurrected at the end of the tribulation, Daniel 12, verses 1 to 2. And of course, the holy angels from heaven, Matthew 25, 31. But it's hard to say, I'm open to any correction if I've missed something, but it's hard to say whether these angels remain on earth or return to heaven to serve Father God. 1 Corinthians 6.3 We can now add to these the just resurrected martyrs from the tribulation. Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. At this moment in time, only the righteous populate the earth. Those once in human flesh, 
but now in resurrected, glorified bodies. And those living humans, still in flesh, but now still in flesh, earthly flesh, followers of Christ who survived the tribulation. So everyone coming out of the tribulation who retained their rebellion against Christ, they're gone now. Anyone from elsewhere around the world, anywhere, Jews, Gentiles, anyone who still is not a follower of Christ, they're gone. They were the goats. They're gone. John MacArthur says that all these, including the still-living tribulation survivors, will reign with Christ. But I question this. In other words, MacArthur is saying that all the living humans still in earthly flesh are reigning with Christ. I think the next two verses in chapter 20 seem to eliminate them as co-rulers. Indeed, it would seem that the still living righteous, in other words, not resurrected, but in flesh when they came to Christ and still in that same flesh now, they will be the ones who are ruled over. If they are ruling well then, that leaves no one to be ruled over. They're all ruling. Chapter 20, verses 5-6. to six. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So, that means that no unbelievers will be back on earth out of the tribulation until after the thousand years. Now, will there be unbelievers on earth by the end of the millennium? Yes. We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 5 finishes, This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. It is the martyred saints from the tribulation, those who gave their mortal lives for the testimony of Christ who will reign with Him along with others. Not those still living. So I conclude that only those inhabiting glorified post-resurrection bodies will be the ones who reign with Him. Now, we need to stick in a sidebar here. The number of resurrections with their titles can be confusing. In fact, I'll be reissuing chart number five. When we, I won't bother to hand it out. Just when I put the, put the booklets together, I'll put in a new one because I got something wrong on there. I'm surprised it hasn't happened more often. It probably has, I just haven't noticed it yet. Keep a good thought. But it would seem that there are more than one first resurrections. 
Christ in His resurrection is called the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15.23 And that is followed by the resurrection of the church at the rapture. Yet here in Revelation 20, the resurrection of the tribulation martyrs is called the first resurrection. One explanation for this could be that first resurrection, as implied in verse 6, refers to the bodily resurrection of all believers whenever they were resurrected. That is the first resurrection of all believers because the second resurrection is limited to the unrighteous dead. So it's not first and second in necessarily sequence chronologically, although it is, but it's the first resurrection is for believers, of believers. The second resurrection is of the unrighteous. Verses 5 and 12. So, looking, look at verse 6 again. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Well, that would describe every believer from the very beginning until now at the beginning of the, of the millennium, wouldn't it? Because the second death has no power over the righteous in Christ. The second death, which will be the lake of fire, Revelation gives that explicitly, will have no power over them. But those from the second resurrection, oh yes, the lake of fire will indeed have power over them. Now let's look at Christ's absolute rule. Let's expand on this for a moment. One thing we learned from this study is that more than a few of our favorite Christmas passages of Scripture really have far more to do with Christ's second coming than His first. For example, Isaiah 9, 6-7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Okay, okay, we're talking about a baby. Here we are in Bethlehem. But that's where it stops. Right there after that first line is where Christmas ends and the eschaton begins. And the government will rest on His shoulders. That's the millennium. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. Now at Christmas we read that peace. What peace are you talking about? Only in the millennium and after. Certainly not in our world. And certainly not in Christ Jesus' world. Bethlehem at peace? No. Far from it. Israel? The Middle East? No way. No way. It continues, "...on the throne of David and over his kingdom." to establish it, to uphold it with righteous and with justice and righteousness from then on and ever forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The government, the rule of the millennium will be on Christ's shoulders alone. Believers will be His representatives around the globe, but He'll be calling all the shots. The seat 
of Messiah's government will be in Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, verses 2-4 to Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Now does that sound familiar? Remember how the earth will be reshaped, how we looked at that? especially from Zechariah. Jerusalem and the Temple Mount will be lifted up above all the rest, and everything higher than that will be lowered. So Jerusalem, and especially the Temple Mount, will be lifted up. Raised above the hills, as Isaiah puts it. And all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come! Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Why? because He will not permit any nation to war against other nations. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. It's a nice line. The prophet Zechariah says it flat out, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. Zechariah 14.9 Kenneth Barker writes, quote, There will be no more idolatry, polytheism, or even henotheism, but only high ethical monotheism. Now I had to look it up, so I'll assume maybe some of you had to. Henotheism is the belief in the supremacy of one God without denying the existence of others. Kind of hedging your bets a little bit. At last, the apostles' prayer will be answered and fulfilled. We all know it by heart. We rattle it off like it doesn't mean anything. Well, the millennium's in there too. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that will be fulfilled. At last. Now let's talk a little bit about these co-rulers. Here's another curious aspect of God's economy. Christ, being God, is certainly capable of managing the affairs of this earth on His own. So why does He enlist the help of those who, quote, reign with Him? Revelation 26. It occurred to me just this morning as my mind wandered during the sermon. This correlates to God's use of believers during the church age, doesn't it? He can certainly save souls without our participation. The Spirit lights the fire, gets it going, convicts of sin, He can take it from there. He can do anything He wants. He doesn't have to use us, yet 
were part of His plan. Just so during the millennium. Christ can do anything He wants. He can rule anyone on the far side of the globe. Like that. In our passage this morning, He was in Cana. The sick child was in Capernaum. I knew it right before I did. Capernaum. No problem. He's okay. Jesus can do that during during the millennium. We can certainly imagine some answers to this. For example, could this be part of the reward system? Our crowns. We wear them for the duration, a thousand years, then give them back to Him as an act of devotion and praise at the beginning of the eternal state. That's a pleasant thought, but let's deal with what we know. Beginning again with the Jews. It's all about the Jews. Daniel 7 in verse 26 says that the court will sit for judgment and the beast's dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Verse 27 speaks of those that will take over in His place. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. End quote, verse 27. Gentile Christians will be granted the same honor. Way back when the Lamb broke open the seals of the scroll, those around the throne sang in chapter 5, verses 9-10, to Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. The Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians that they were certainly qualified to adjudicate disputes within the church for, quote, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Then there is this business of Christ's iron rod. In our last session, discussing Christ's immediate and brutal consignment of the two beasts to the lake of fire, I said that the dispensation of love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is at an end. Now comes the dispensation of vengeance and wrath. No mercy will be shown to the wicked. Whether it may be deemed another dispensation or not, once the wicked are removed from the earth and the millennium begins, We might say that the time of vengeance and wrath is over. No need for it, right? But now will be the time of immediate and in comparison to the Jesus of the Gospels, harsh justice. Time and again in God's Word we hear the phrase, as we did in Psalm 2, a rod of iron. 
Iron is unyielding, doesn't bend. This represents the manner in which Christ will rule during the millennium. And it's worth repeating Isaiah 11.4. But with righteousness He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. And with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. No forbearance. No long-suffering. As we enjoy now. Thank goodness. Sin will be destroyed. The wicked will be destroyed. Now, maybe that brings you to a point that I got to. Even so, I, can, I believe we can assume that the details of salvation in Christ included in the New Testament for this time of grace during this dispensation of grace, will hold true during the millennium. That is, that true followers of Christ in earthly flesh will persevere until the end. And that Christ will not instantly reject them for every fleshly sin in their lives. So when God's Word describes His rule as slaying the wicked and purging from you those who transgress against Me, it presumably refers to those who have rejected His salvation outright. If people are still in flesh, and those coming out of the tribulation are, followers of Christ, believers, true believers, but they were not martyred and then resurrected. They're just like us today. Believers in Christ still in fallen flesh. They're going to sin because we sin. So it's hard for me to believe that then For any transgression for, by any believer, Jesus instantly wipes them out. I think this passage is speaking of those who are in rebellion against Christ. Are not followers in any way. Now let me, let me summarize in conclusion what we've looked at. Because the Apostle John was not granted visions of the millennium as he was for the tribulation, we've had to glean information from mostly the Old Testament prophets. But even what they tell us has more to do with the establishing of the millennium. The opening days, how it comes about, what it looks like in the beginning. Then its progress through the thousand years. We simply do not have any pictures, any visions, any descriptions of life on earth during the bulk of those 1,000 years. Thus, we must include in our analysis some educated assumptions. The Lord's Davidic kingdom on earth will open with judgments intended to remove all who are in rebellion against the Messiah. 
Wipes the slate clean. Only believers. This means that in its earliest days, the millennium's general populace consists of followers of Christ alone, all still in earthly, non-glorified flesh. They will be ruled over by Christ Jesus, enthroned in Jerusalem, and resurrected saints from the Old Testament and church age. That's us. As well as the recently resurrected martyred saints from the tribulation, all in glorified bodies, not fleshly bodies. For the next thousand years, Satan will remain chained and powerless in the abyss. No direct influence over those alive in the millennium. Along with the earth being repopulated over the next thousand years, much of it will assuredly be rebuilt after the destruction of the tribulation. When the millennium begins, the world is a wreck. Unlivable. No water. At least. It's been reshaped. It's literally been wrecked. after the tribulation with its series of plagues. We might also allow for Messiah to work some miracles to clean up some of the damage. He can do that. Rendering the earth more livable. He could, for example, with a word command, uh, a word of command cleanse the oceans and fresh water of the life-killing blood from the bowls of wrath. Done. Some, <laughs> I have to drink something. Over the next thousand years, the initial believing generation will have children and grandchildren on ad infinitum for many generations. Though this will indeed be a spiritually rich period with Christ Jesus on the throne, you bet, not all of these descendants will be believers. So that by the end of the millennium, Satan will have no problem forming a new army from the repopulated earth with which to war against Christ. Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. Those non believers have to come somewhere. When God's word speaks of an expanding kingdom of peace, it does not speak of the church age before Christ's return, but the millennium after His return. Even so, during this time of peace, with Messiah on His earthly throne, human flesh, as well as the earth itself, will still be fallen with inherent sin. Now, this doesn't include those in glorified bodies, but there's many, many millions of people by the time the millennium is over, in flesh. It will still be necessary after the thousand years for the Godhead to create a new earth. If you ever wondered why there has to be a new earth? New heavens? New Jerusalem? The world's been wrecked. 
that's still full of sinners, God is not going to dwell with sin. He will create a new earth, new heavens, and supply them with a new earthly throne for not just the Son, but the Father as well. And let's conclude with that, that reference. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. One of the best passages in all of Scripture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea, that is, sin. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud... <laughs> that's uh, You husbands in the crowd here, do you remember that? You remember that? You remember what Jerusalem is going to look like coming down? I remember standing there in front, down at the front of the church, watching her come down the aisle in her white voice. <laughs> Whoa. That's what it's going to be like. It doesn't say it's the bride coming down. It says Jerusalem will be as a bride coming to her husband. I digress. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Amen. We look forward to that day. Our Father in heaven, Mystery upon mystery. Your revelation is full of them. And by the mercy of Your Spirit, the ministry of Your Spirit, we're struggling through an understanding of what will happen in these final days. Thank You for revealing as much as You have. You still left a lot for us to wonder about. That too is Your will. Thank You for entrusting this to us. Thank You for Your Word and thank You for this time to study it together. In Jesus' name, Amen.